Hello and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Honey, where I'm from, we stand for the national anthem. True, true. This is episode two of our series, Get Me Another, When Harry Met Sally. Last week, we discussed the two films whose success kicked off the romantic comedy boom of the 1990s, Rob Reiner and Nora Ephron's When Harry Met Sally, and Pretty Woman from director Gary Marshall. While When Harry Met Sally was very much a film made by and about baby boomers, this week we'll be looking at two romantic comedies that focus on members of Gen X, who by the 90s had started to enter young adulthood. We are very excited to be joined this week for our Gen X rom-com exploration by a very special guest, writer, producer, and director, and founder of Reverend Entertainment, Justin Beam. Justin, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks, guys, for having me back on. I'm looking forward to this. And and you can't see uh, this audience because uh, this is a podcast, but... Justin wearing a very appropriate hat uh, for this episode. Yes. There we go. Montreal Canadiens. Yeah, that's my, uh, those are my guys. For anyone out there who might not have heard our Get Me Another Halloween episode that you were on, could you tell us a little bit about Reverend Entertainment and what you might have been up to in the last few months? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Reverend, well, I primarily fo- specialize in special features for a number of different companies like Paramount, Shout Factory. TerraVision, uh, Vinegar Syndrome. The TerraVision is a newer thing for me. I'm actually the th- sort of the third man on that team. It's a newer label that's grown out yeah. of out of a record label that's been going on for a number of years now, run by Ryan Graveface, and they brought me in to be sort of the third teammate in this video endeavor. And they have grown out of being a sub label of Vinegar into their own thing, and so now we're just exploding with things that we've licensed and. It's just, it's nuts. It's absolutely crazy and so incredibly creatively rewarding. It's just amazing. But still doing stuff with, like I said, Paramount and Shout Factory and the others. But um, the newer thing to your question about what's been up is adding the Terravision to my to my uh, workload every week, which is a lot of fun. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, it's a, as you say, it's a lot. And that, uh, I've heard of Terravision. I, uh, was it Brad Henderson? Is he... One of the guys involved? Brad is. Yeah, he came over from uh, from Vinegar Syndrome, which is yeah, where, he, that's where, where he was before. And he used to have a podcast, Screamcast, years ago. Oh, yes. And kind of everything grew out of that. And that's actually how we met was through that years ago when they had me on that show. So he's a great dude. And, and what I love about them is that everybody's hearts are in the right place with Terravision. I'm not saying they aren't elsewhere, but I'm saying sure. it's really rooted in pr- preservation of things that might be lost otherwise. And I think that we're going to be surprising a lot of people this year with some of the licenses that we're picking up. Oh, I'm very excited to see what's next because I have been following Terravision, I, 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 you know, again, on uh, on social media and stuff. And I'm very excited for some of the stuff you have. I have to mention, because I know you did the special features. My wife got me for Christmas the six million dollar man complete series box set i haven't had a chance to crack it open because because the first quarter of 2023 has been crazy but i'm super psyched for it and uh I suspect maybe that that the bionic the, the bionic woman set as a as a companion yep. might be coming in the not too distant future. Yeah, we did both those at the same time. It was such a blast. That was it was neat to dive back in and I had a great historian along for most of for a lot of that on the commentaries and I brought in some producers and directors of various episodes 
and just amazing insight. And neither were series that I have spent a lot of time with as an adult. When I was a kid, mm-hmm. I'd watch them in reruns and stuff. Absolutely. Nick, Nickelodeon, I think, ran those for a while. And I was more into like other things as an adult. But it's but you, when you watch these shows back, mm-hmm. one of the most amazing things are the the, the the players that come in for just an episode. Oh, absolutely. And it's a who's who in the business. And I absolutely love it. It's one of the things I treasure about one of my favorite all-time shows is The Rockford Files. Yeah. Oh, it's it's that's one of the great detective shows. Maybe the great private detective show. Absolutely. If Columbo's the greatest TV detective show, Rockford Files is the greatest private detective show. They're the pillars of 70s detective series. They are, yeah. And I love Garner. I mean, we're getting in Rockford Files here, but Garner's, oh man, James Rockford is so amazing at just rolling with things. And when I was younger, he was the first adult I saw who didn't just always have it together or who didn't crumble under pressure. Because it seems like Oftentimes, especially in entertainment, it's one or the other when you're watching cinema that involves kids and adults. There's usually on opposite ends of that spectrum. Anyway, he was a fallible hero. Oh, yeah. He made a mess of so many things. But when things come, it came at him. He was just able to sort of move through it. And I, I think about that all the time. Yeah in the crazy world that I'm keeping all these plates spinning in as every day things are shifting and moving around and like, what would James Rockford do? That should be a bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah, honestly, that should uh, that should be a mantra. I should put that on my wall above my desk and just because that's it's it, you're you're one hundred percent right on. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's very exciting. So today we're here to talk about two Gen X romantic comedies, and they're different from each other, although they have some similarities. And I think uh, I think it's it's going to be very interesting. Our first film today is a romantic comedy about a hockey player and a figure skater who have to learn to get along both on and off the ice. This is The Cutting Edge. It's one o'clock. It's one o'clock in the afternoon. I'm just about four hours late here, Rita. Rita? Anita. Gita. Gita! Close. Olympic star Doug Dorsey is the best hockey player in America, and he's about to retire. Kate Mosley was America's sweetheart. Until Hercules here learns how to lock his grip, this will have to do. And she's got a nickname that rhymes with rich. What a thing. For both of them, the Olympics had become a faraway dream. Here, you try. Until someone. Those are figure skates, pal. Set up the ultimate blind date. Who the hell do you think you are? I'm a guy who came a long way from lunch. Please don't let me keep you from the trough. Enough! The king of the rink and America's ice queen just became a team. Don't quit your day job. Would you please put me down? You Clayton! Guess that move needs some work. You've been doing what? I've been doing a little figure skating. Finger painting? As a matter of fact, I do have a boyfriend. What do you do, keep him chained up in the basement? I don't like to see her upset. If I was you, I'd invest in blindfolds. Are they gonna get it? Before they kill each other? You look really nervous. How nervous are you? Dorsey and Mosley, the American Olympic team's best shot at the gold. You're falling for him. Oh, that's crazy. (laughs) Thanks, you've missed it. I am throwing myself at you. Get out of my way. No problem. I've been practicing that move for a year and a half. D.B. Sweeney. Man, would I love to see you play hockey. Moira Kelly. Any day. 
cutting edge. It's not like his nose was perfect. The Cutting Edge was released in March of 1992, just about a month after the end of the 1992 Winter Olympics in Albertville, France, which was the setting for the climactic skating competition in the movie. The film was written by Tony Gilroy, who would go on to write the Bourne trilogy, as well as write and direct 2007's Michael Clayton, and create the incredible Star Wars series Andor. And this was his first writing credit, which is insane. It's just, I mean, like that's, uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's great, but my God, what this guy would go on to, he's, he's, he's one of the giants. Absolutely. I, uh, and I saw this back in the theater, uh, in 92 because Ooh. I was seeing everything. I liked it then. I, I hadn't seen this in a long time, had no memory of Tony Gilroy having anything to do with this. And I have to say, like, I, I had never seen this movie from start to finish. I think I'd seen pieces of it, but it is one of my wife's absolute favorites she loves this movie with her whole heart um i also want to mention it was directed by paul michael glazer who was detective dave starsky on another 70s detective show (laughs) starsky and hutch and also the director of the running man and i love the fact that the running man and the cutting edge were directed by the same guy i think that's just fantastic i'm such a mark for the running man oh i love that movie so much it's it's infinitely rewatchable for me and it's total comfort food and i i I love the same for you I, i love that he did both and they both have ice skating in them yes have hockey in them, technically. Uh, The Cutting Edge tells the story of Kate Mosley, an Olympic-level figure skater who can't seem to keep a partner, and Doug Dorsey, a hockey player on the U.S. men's Olympic team who seems destined for the NHL until an injury at the 1988 Calgary Olympics damages his peripheral vision. The film stars D.B. Sweeney and Moira Kelly as Doug and Kate, respectively, as well as Roy Daltris and Terry O'Quinn. And when we talked, we talked quite a little bit last week when we were talking about When Harry Met Sally, about how that film put the two protagonists on equal footing. And I think we have another case of that here. I think this movie does a great job of kind of balancing these two characters where it's not it's not Doug's story. It's not Kate's story. It's really both of them. Absolutely. And throughout the film, uh, as, as we run through it, they really take great care to trade competencies, right? So if you have a scene where, um, you know, Doug is trying to, you know, skate in figure skates and is constantly falling down, then you may follow it in a little bit with a scene where they're uh, playing a little ice hockey on I that figure that skating scene. rink. Me too. And so, yeah, they, they get to kind of duke it out uh, and verbally as well. Like yeah. usually – if one has the upper hand in one scene, they'll switch it around the next one. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Like uh, obviously, a lot of romantic comedies, you have uh, protagonists that that you know don't like each other at the at the outset, and then come to like each other and fall in love over the course of the movie. That's kind of you know that's what we're doing here. Uh, but I I can't think of another movie where you have the two protagonists as openly hostile to each other as they are early in this film. It's. It's fantastic. Well, I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that they both come from failure to a certain extent. Yes. They've, they're, they're, they start out flawed. Yeah. And that's not something that you get in a lot of these kinds of stories. Usually the flaw is something that's encountered later or buried under layers of something that have to be peeled back. But here at the outset, we're introduced to the fact that they've both been struggling in their field, I guess yeah. you could say. And uh, the difference is he's on his own. 
he's uh, the maverick kind of loner, where she has machinery around her in the form of this team of investors and people who are really she's kind of a machine for them, yeah, for them for the the corporate machine, I guess you could say. And so the two meet, and I, I just think it's really fascinating that uh, th- th- that they are treated equally, even though they uh, are are both really coming from different perspectives on how they're going to be approaching this next venture that they're entering into together against their will, both of them. That's very interesting because um, when, when Harry met Sally, you don't really get the class issue, right? No. But you do in Pretty Woman. And this definitely follows in that mold where you are, uh, you know, the the class and economic status is very much a part of uh, why these characters butt heads and why why they kind of come together in the way they do too. I think it's an interesting dynamic as well in terms of parroting real life because I, I play hockey and I can say that in arenas there's figure skaters and there's hockey mm-hmm. players of, of all walks and genders and everything. So it's certainly not gendered in any way, at least in any of my experience historically. But there's when you're out there on the ice and you're just doing open skate time, let's say the the figure skaters very much do their own thing and sort of keep their pocket on the ice in terms of their their territory, where the hockey kids are just zooming around everybody, <laughs> crazy skating, and it's it's two different cultures that share the same real estate, which I think is a very unique thing in the realm of sports and entertainment. Yeah, because outs, I mean, soccer fields are not football fields. Football fields are not baseball diamonds. None of these things can double for each other, really, except in the realm of figure skating and hockey. Yeah. And the earmarks of hockey function are are built into figure skating by default. The boards around the edges that are puck marked. Because mm. and, and in the Olympics too, they're using the figure skating ice for hockey right. as well. And so you're it's like they're blended somehow and the blemishes that one creates are worn by the other without really acknowledging that. And so when these two come together in this film, it's kind of the same thing. There's like this, they become a unit and the blemishes of one are definitely sort of worn by the other. Yeah. But the effort isn't really made to, too much to polish that. There's a certain acceptance of of the flaws in both of them. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And, and that's explored throughout the movie. Also a unique thing. Yeah. No, it, it's 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 super interesting the way they start this movie because you have them both. At, it's at the 88 Olympics and you kind of cut back and forth between the two main characters at various points. And I thought it was really interesting the way they had the crowd. They both are met with failure. They both start with failure. She she you know, falls, her partner drops her in, in the, the, you know, the finals and he gets, takes a hit that, that eventually will end his, his hockey career. Um, and it's really interesting what they do with the crowd in those two scenes, cutting back and forth where the crowd for Doug, when he gets hit, you can hear the crowd kind of have a palpable reaction when she falls it's silent. It's this, it's this two, like there's a very engaged crowd for him and a very disengaged crowd for her. And at the very beginning, even though they're both starting from failure, you can see that, that he sort of brings a passion to it that she doesn't have, you know, that has, has become dormant in her. And I think that's reflected in the way the crowds react to them until you, you sort of build up to the point where they both literally collide with each other, you know, kind of in the hallway, you know, and, and, and the line that uh, Rob quoted at the beginning where, you know, 
and then we stand for the national anthem. It's a, you know, just a, a wonderful little shot when he gets hit there too, of the, where you get that close up of just his helmet spinning on the ice upside mm. down. Yeah. Um, yeah. it's just, uh, very evocative, a little creepy for, for something that normally you would just kind of, you know, you have the smash and then you're gone. And and the interesting thing about his injury that, you know, cause it's his peripheral vision. It basically, he has, there's a really good scene in the doctor's office where he kind of learns about it. And, you know, basically you're not going to be able to, to play because that is a key element, but it doesn't affect his skating ability. Like the, the injury, it's not like he got injured to like his ankle or leg or something where, Oh, I can't, he can still skate as well as he did, but he can't see as well as he did. And that takes him off the table for hockey. And, Kate has apparently run through so many partners that had her Russian coach, Anton Pimchenko, will now go to unconventional lengths to find a partner for her. And that's what brings him to Doug's door. And, uh, you know, I mean, again, like like the movies we talked about last week, here's this is a movie that that ride or die on its chemistry, the chemistry between the two stars. And they are terrific. And you'd mentioned uh, last episode, too, about. Uh, in the eighties, uh, a lot of the romantic comedies being workplace comedies. This one is, uh, yeah. Harry went, when Harry met Sally is not pretty woman is not, but this is in a, in a way a workplace comedy, yeah. a very unconventional workplace, but, uh, one nonetheless. And it's, uh, it does give a little extra juice, I think, uh, so that they're not just sniping at each other about, um, things that don't matter. Right. right? They can actually, they can actually clash about something that matters because they both wind up being passionate about this in different ways. Although clearly Doug is not there to begin with. Well, it's, it's interesting because the thing they have in common and the thing that keeps at the, in the early parts of the movie, that king thing that keeps them from like all out warfare is they have an incredible work ethic and both of them really want to work hard at what they do. And you see them kind of trying to top each other with train. It's like, oh, well, I can, you know, I can try, I can start training at six o'clock in the morning. I'll be out there training at five o'clock in the morning. And there's that, 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 um, you know, it's just that, 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 that's the shared ground that they have from the outset. I want to point out that neither DB Sweeney nor Moira Kelly knew how to skate when they were cast. And they spent three months training and Moira Kelly fractured her ankle the first week of shooting, which forced the production to shoot around it for a month while she wore a cast. She was also supposed to play the uh, the role of Gina Davis's younger sister in a league of their own, but lost the role to Lori Petty on account of that injury. Crazy, which set Lori Petty up for everything. Yeah. I mean, that's wonderful. I mean, it's awful, but awful. Yeah. Wow. Um yeah, I, I, you mentioned it before, Rob, but I love the scene where she challenges, where Doug challenges her, rather, to an impromptu hockey match, which he easily wins, but culminates with her hitting him in the face with the puck. And, and part of it is, I think Moira Kelly is absolutely adorable in this sequence. And honestly, through the whole movie, I, I have to admit to having a Moira Kelly thing from back in the day. And, uh, and uh, just because we, uh, when you get to the hockey part, I, do, I did want to call this out because uh, 92, you still have some 80s elements. Yep. And this movie has some absolutely fantastic music montages in it rob it's like it's like you literally it's like you're a sorcerer that reads the thoughts in my brain my next note is montages that's literally my next note is this movie this movie has montages in the tradition of a rocky four i did some math 
From the 25-minute mark to the 32-minute mark, we have three montages. That's three montages in seven minutes. <laughs> Amazing. I could have had six more, and I would have been happy in, in those seven minutes because I am a child of the 80s. Absolutely. I love a good montage. Uh, even even an okay montage. Just, you know – and. Doesn't matter. It's fine. Give me a montage within a montage. I'm good with that too. You can accomplish so much in such a short window of time, and I think that's one of the things that he does. That I mean, in, in terms of how this is directed, the way the montages are done are almost like sports sequences in a lot of films. Absolutely, because the way that they're cut together and it's it's efficient that we can look at from a filmmaker's eye, and we can see the efficiency with handling storytelling this way. But also, it's it keeps things moving for the audience, and it. And these things were meant to be romantic. And when you're talking about romantic films, so much of what makes romance magical is the dance that you're doing. And those moments are so fleeting. And so when you're the path of discovery in a relationship is so much of, I mean, that, that's, that's where the roots are planted. And that's where the mystery also starts to grow. Mm -hmm. And it also emerges eventually. But when we're experiencing things in real life as we're meeting people and going on dates and all of that, it is a collage of experiences that feel like they're moving so quickly. So it's not completely out of the human experience. Yeah. And then you have your music in your car when you're driving home from a date or something. Yeah. And that it it all makes sense in a way that it's not unnatural for it. And, and it works perfectly in something like this. Um, and, and again, I, I point to it in a way, it's a thread to the the skating and the hockey scenes and elements in the film because it all feels like it's kind of pulled from the same mold in a way, when they return to sequences like that. Yeah, it's interesting that both movies this week, music is a, an incredibly key element of both of these films. And that's yeah. something they do have in common. They're, the music itself is very different, but um, it, it's it's incredibly intrinsic to both of these films. And uh, yeah. Because it is to life. Yeah. I remember every friend I have, I can tell you how we have a bond over music. Whether we've even talked about it, I know what... Rob played in his car the first time I got in your car was Beck. You had a, you had a Beck audio cassette. I remember getting into your car for the very first time. I don't remember you were we were going to Relics Records or something and band practice or something like that. And yeah. and you had this Beck tape playing and it was you were yeah. playing like an earlier album of some sort and I was like, oh, wow, this yeah. is really great. And so anyway, it's it's tied to all of our memories. It's tied to our world. We do have soundtracks to our life. Yeah, and so. It's and and I, I love that in these films they're also they're kind of a a cultural and an era timestamp with the music that they use. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we'll 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 talk more about that when we talk about singles because that feels like very much of a very uh, particular era. Um, but Rob, I want to I want to come back to something you had mentioned earlier, and and I think it's is super interesting that last week, you know, Pretty Woman was was a movie that was sort of steeped in class conflict, and this film really continues that. Doug is a is a hockey player from the industrial Midwest. Kate is a figure skater from I believe Greenwich, Connecticut, and the difference between their views and attitude is part of that conflict. Although the the genders are reversed from Pretty Woman. Um, the big difference is that Edward and Vivian in Pretty Woman like each other from the get-go. So the class conflict comes more from the people surrounding Edward and the world. Uh, the, the Jason Alexander character, the, the women in the, the boutiques. Here, 
Kate and Doug don't like each other for like the first third of the movie. So they can use like their class conflicts as ways to needle one another. Or, you know, there's a great moment where Kate teases Doug about his level of education. And he kind of comes back at her and says, well, where'd you go to college? And she gets very quiet because she's so sheltered that her whole life has been, you know, private private tutor. So while she's very book smart, she hasn't had much experience in the real world and in all likelihood longs for the normalcy of a school experience. And in that moment, he doesn't say, where did you go to school? He says, well, where did you matriculate? Yeah, he does. And she sits there silently looking at her book because she doesn't know that word, I guess. And then where did you go to school? He says, yeah. And, you know, so that's a hint for him. He's not just the, this, the bloody knuckles, blue collar guy. Yeah. He's he's more than that. And I think that's what makes these characters work. They they are both more than what is initially presumed. Absolutely. And with the characters, the the thing that I think cements it where it's not just, you know, she was came from a richer family, he came from a poorer family and opposites attract. They they actually I think take great care where she is set up as someone who's kind of been coddled and had her butt kissed, uh, right? especially in the context of the figure skating world. Yes. And here's this guy who will not do that, right? Who's going to treat her as as a person, right? And on the reverse side, he, when he was the Minnesota machine, the hockey legend, uh, also had a lot of women uh, perhaps being quite deferential to him is the uh, <laughs> you know, well, expectation. Yeah, yeah. That. And, and here's a woman who does not care what he did. Right. Yeah. And who is also challenging him. So I think just from the situations, it actually it works in an organic way, which is why it feels so nice as opposed to just, you know, doing it to do it. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, There is a scene about midway through this movie that brought to mind a very similar scene from when Harry met Sally. And that is New Year's Eve. There's a key moment in New Year's Eve in both movies where the protagonists kind of notice the first feelings of mutual attraction with the, the, the midnight kiss tradition on New Year's Eve. And I just, the first thing I want to say about the cutting edge, and this is a safety tip for all the folks out there. <laughs> Do not light sparklers in the house. I don't care how big your house is. Do not light sparklers in the house the way they do in this movie. It is unsafe and safety has got to come first. But it makes for a beautiful shot. It does. It does. Uh, it's also, it's interesting because that sequence, the New Year's Eve sequence, also introduces Kate's boyfriend, Hale. Uh, so he, you know, this is the fir- where she's, she's in a relationship and in a lesser movie, Hale would have been a complete a-hole. He would have been a snobby douchebag that you just wanted to see get kicked to the curb. But it's interesting that they make him not that. Like, you you think he might be at first, but but he's not. And, you know, he's kind of bland, but he's not a bad dude. And it's it's really an interesting choice. I, I think it's great. It's, it's wonderfully comforting to have a character who's handled like he is because, and I have that in my notes too, that when he first comes up, the first thing he says, oh, the secret weapon. Yeah. Like he's acknowledging, like, you're the guy who's going to get us to where we need to be. I've heard about you. It's not standoffish like you're going to be trying to get with my girl. And that's so appreciated and refreshing that he can walk in that way. And then things happen from there. But I love that introduction for him because it makes him 
human and it makes him nice. And I like movies where people are nice and not just caricatures of villains. Well, it would have been, it would have been the easy, it would have been easy to make him an alpha beta from revenge of the nerds. Like that would have just been the easy choice. And, and that they didn't go with that. I think just, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's just super interesting. And, and it's also interesting. Doug is also faced with judgment from his own world. Like it's not just, Oh, I'm uh, the the rich snobby people aren't going to like the, the Midwestern blue collar guy. When he goes home shortly after that sequence, he initially hides what he's been doing all these months, which leads to one of my favorite lines in the movie. When his brother yells out, Hey, my brother, Doug home from the merchant Marine. Um, yeah, and it's just it's and and they come to accept him too, but it's it, the, the, there's a there's a sort of prejudice that kind of runs in both directions, which is interesting. This uh, the introduction of Hale and then the brother's attitude toward uh, Doug going to Chicago for the big meet. It's interesting because up till now, almost all of their conflict has been solely internal between Kate and Doug. Yeah, and this is a nice. Uh, you know, we we talked before about how a lot of times in a, you know many '80s romantic comedies before this, almost all of the conflict was external, or a lot of it was generated external. You know, Doug and Kate have been slowly getting to know each other, and they're not on such terrible terms. But you have, it's still not great, and this is external conflict that kind of gooses the internal conflict. It's not creating it, but it's kind of stirring the pot in a, a very believable way and uh in a way where you're you know you're you're letting them get closer you have that new year's eve kiss and then this does feel very organic you're pulling them back apart again yeah uh but not in some like you know sitcom kind of way but it's also not him planting the kiss yeah it's yeah. a kiss from her on his cheek it's not even like a lip-to-lip kiss that moment again the same with her boyfriend the way that they're handling this moment in in most other films would be obvious that they'd have this kiss and sort of back up and both be startled and then move about their business to pretend it didn't it didn't happen or something but here when they lean in she's the one who goes in for it then they kind of have that moment and i like that he's not the aggressor yeah yeah not that there's an aggressive element in that moment but she makes the move yeah i like that absolutely um and doug and kate they make it to nationals which is in in chicago from which the top two teams will qualify for the 1992 olympics in alberville where that you know we have our third act and there's a scene where doug and kate meet kate's previous partner and his new partner and we very quickly get the sense that her former partner wa- is gay and what i i love is for a movie in 1992 to not like Doug's reaction to learning that is not to, to go to the gay panic thing, which is would have been so common in movies of that era to just, Oh, he's gonna, you know, Oh, well, I don't want to, you know, that, that gay panic bullshit that frankly, if you watch reruns of friends is replete throughout that show, but here they, they underplay, you know, it's just like, Oh, Oh, okay. That's, that's how it is. And it's, it's, I I just think it's so nice that they didn't go with the obvious gay panic thing as a, you know, as a, as trying to get a laugh out of it. That's all Gilroy. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's even used actually to reinforce the, uh, the chemistry between Kate and Doug, because the, the former partner looks at her very knowingly and is like, 
uh, I see why I, I don't have the exact line, but I see why you've been keeping them to yourself or whatever, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. Like an acknowledgement that, you know, hey, look, we all know D.B. Sweeney's hot, but look, we've well, got yeah. a character on screen telling us he is. <laughs> it's helpful. It's great because she hasn't acknowledged much of that at all. I mean, th- that that brief moment at the New Year's Eve thing is really as close as it gets, but she hasn't given him the once up and down. There's been none of that up until that point. So that kind of forces her hand in that moment to kind of be like acknowledge, yeah. even with just like a little look over, kind of glance over at him, like maybe. So she's been burying it. And then it's her ex who kind of goes like, you know, you can say it's okay. Go ahead, you know, do your thing, <laughs> which is great. Great. And it's around this time that her Hale, her boyfriend, realizes that Kate's in love with Duck. And and even though she's not willing to admit it, he and they've gotten engaged earlier in the in an earlier sequence of the film. And it, it's it's interesting how Hale reacts. He doesn't react with anger. He kind of reacts with almost maybe not quite amusement, but disappointment. But it's this sort of thing where they again, it's it's something that could have been overplayed, and they chose to play a more restrained version of that revelation on his part. And I just think it's, it's so to the movie's benefit. And it's interesting because oftentimes you would have that boyfriend or fiance character uh, turn heel so that you would know, Oh yeah, we want that relationship to end in this, this new one uh, to, to blossom. Yeah. But by doing it this way, by underplaying it and having him, he is so ready to let her go. Yeah. Yeah. And, And you're like, it's another way of going, Oh, I, I guess that wasn't true love. If he's just like, you know, right. he's a little sad, but it feels more like, really? You're going to go with that guy instead of me? Okay. Well, the signals the signals from her ex and from Doug, the, the Doug is signaling Kate. Kate's ex is kind of signaling her too. But in a way, Doug is saying to, I, I, I correct myself, to Hale. Doug is signaling Hale early on mm-hmm. where he's like, I don't, what did he say? I don't like to hang around drama or I don't like to involve myself with drama. Yeah. A lot, and, something to that effect. Yeah. 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 And Doug says something like, well, you better get yourself a lawyer or something like that. I'm completely <laughs> blowing yeah. the paraphrase here. But Doug is saying, and, and, but Hale's not showing his hand at that point that he's even acknowledging. Yeah. She's a complete pain to me or something, or yeah, she is a handful while the other people around are all kind of pointing at it. Like it's this big red flag. Like the problem is here, but Hale's kind of outside of that. And so it's almost like when, when he, when things happen with Doug, then Hale is like, okay, yeah, this gives me the reason to open myself up to the reality here is the way that comes off to me. Yeah, no, I absolutely. It's, it's, you know, this is one of those movies that if if you had lesser in, in lesser hands would have just been kind of a cheesy mess and it would have played all those notes too much. And that the, the people who made it really were skilled at what they were doing that, that you know, I mean, it's it's not again, it's not a classic necessarily on the order of when Harry met Sally, but it's it, it's just a really – it's doing what it does incredibly well. Well, and Chris, how many sequels does When Harry Met Sally have? Because <laughs> I was, I'll tell you the – I'm going to talk about the sequels at the end. I have – yes. Um, well, That's the only thing that matters. Cold hard cash, baby. It's a franchise. Um <laughs> Um, well, they, the, Doug and Kate do very well. They do well in the in the in the nationals, but not quite well enough. And it looks like they're going to be out of the Olympics until another team takes a fall, which also leads to one of my other favorite lines in the movie. It looks like she got caught at his leader hosen, which is just 
hysterical. <laughs> but they do qualify for the Olympics. And after that, Kate decides to drink a little. Now, they, 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 they lay out earlier that she has not drank at all. So this presents a problem when she decides to have like six shots at the bar at the hotel. And that leads to her getting drunk and making a pass at Doug, which he politely rebuffs because – you know, because she's drunk. And of course, I have to say, if you've never drunk, drank and you have six shots, you wouldn't be as as in as good shape as she was. You'd be on the floor in the bathroom and it wouldn't be it would be just a mess. But she's all right. I want to mention that scene because uh, Doug carries Kate up to the room. She's drunk and she's wearing this giant fur coat. And the reason for that, it was there to cover the cast that that Moira Kelly was wearing from the ankle fracture because they they were trying to shoot everything they could until her ankle was Mm. better that didn't involve the actual skating. So I just – The coat jumps out because you never see that coat ever again in the movie, like before or after. It's very – yeah, it stands out. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so and Doug, of course, makes the whole situation worse by going to bed with Kate's ex-partner's new partner. And of course, Kate catches Doug, it catches her in Doug's room, and that, you know, helps the tension for act three. And uh, you know, and then off we go to the Olympics. And the Pomchenko. The Pomchenko, yeah. It's in, it's out, it's in, <laughs> it's out. Okay, guys, this is not subtle anymore. <laughs> The third act, they they just they, they there's this Soviet pair that is apparently so good. There's no way Kate and Doug can beat them unless. And I love That's this in sports Soviets. movies. The special oh, yeah. move. I love the, the triple Lindy. The triple Lindy. The crane the technique. <laughs> yes. Um, and 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 their, their coaches created this, and it's dangerous, but it'll get them the gold if they pull it off. And there's this whole thing where it goes. Uh, you know, in and out, and it's in and out of the program. I, I'm honestly, I was never quite sure what the special move entailed because usually in like sports movies with these kind of things, you get a demonstration of it early, like Miyagi on the beach practicing the crane technique. Here, you don't really get to have that, so I didn't. Uh, I, you know, I, was, I was a little unclear on what the actual move was. The um, move is you have to trust each other. Well, yes, that's true. <laughs> It's that it's that spinning thing, and there's a wrestler who does that. I can't remember the wrestler's name, but he's a WWE guy, or was at least, and he that's what he does is he grabs the guys by their feet, and then he just goes around and around and around, and their, fla- their arms are flailing. They're just st- spinning him like you would to like a sibling or a neighbor when you're little playing in the yard. It's like the scene from Conan the Destroyer the where Destroyer. he fights the wizard, yes. he fights Tothamon, and he's- Totally. <laughs> Totally. But she looks like a doll when he's when he's oh, yeah. whipping her around like a pinwheel. It's like, this is the move? This is the one that's going to win the gold? What is this? I do want to mention that there was, a, there was a historical incident that the filmmakers could not have foreseen because the film was shot in you know, a year, you know, a year or so before the actual uh, 1992 Alberville Olympics. And they're going up against the Russian figure skating team as you would both both in in 
drama of the 80s and in real life, you're going to go up against the Russians for figure skating, or in this case, the Soviets. But what they couldn't have foreseen, that the Soviet Union would collapse in 1991. And by 1992, the Russians were playing under the flag of the, quote, unified team for a couple of years before each Soviet republic got its own Olympic team. Uh, I just wanted to mention that. I was like, oh, in this alternate timeline, there's still the Soviet Union in 1992. Interesting. Uh, but anyway, we learn a little bit, and this is an interesting, towards the end, we, we get, uh, you know, Kate starts looking at her old footage, and we kind of get that Kate is someone who self-sabotages a little bit, that, that maybe it's not always the partner's fault, that maybe it's, it's something in her. And there's an interesting, there's sort of an interesting shift that happens in that third act, as she kind of comes to realize that it's not always the other person that some of the fault for her lack of success lies with her. That's at that table scene where there's just the cacophony of everyone going. Blah, 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 blah. It's one, that's a, that's one of the cliches that this movie does include is where people get together and it, there may be only four of us, but you're all talking about different things all at the same time. But there's someone who's going to go, Hey, then everyone shuts up and then everything shifts in that moment. And that happens here. All these men are arguing over what should be happening and who shouldn't be involved, blah, 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 blah. And then she's the one who goes, it's me. It's me. And they go, what? So that's the big moment of reveal for her. And then she walks away and it's just like, whoa. Well, just before going on for what will be their final Olympic performance, Doug tells Kate that he loves her and that he needs her. And it can't be any, I love the line, it can't be any harder to stay together than it was to stay apart. And that's such a good line and such a good kind of, it's just a good thought. And and she replies that they're doing the Pamchenko. Pamchenko's back on with the, this revelation and they do it and they win. And, you know, and, and as you mentioned earlier, I wanted to, I wanted to bring this up. D.B. Sweeney and Moira Kelly agree never to do a sequel without the other. Uh, and but eventually there were three direct to video sequels that were made focusing on Doug and Kate's daughter. Now, those movies recast Doug and Kate and they retcon the original to taking place during the 1984 Olympics. So the age can work. Uh, and as a consequence, I'm not sure I can ever bring myself to watch them. <laughs> It, all three are about the daughter? Oh, I, I think the first one's about the daughter, and then the second one, the daughter's a coach, and maybe the daughter's out of it by the third one. I don't know. But I will mention uh. that their daughter was <laughs> – my wife used to babysit for the actress who played their daughter, Christy Carlson Romano. Wow. I, I, that is a true story. Yes, they, they ah. in Connecticut where my wife grew up. It's a small, strange world. Indeed. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I really like this movie. I, I, you know, it's not it's not necessarily breaking new ground, but it's a it's a great example of just a movie done really well. It's not it's not the, the it's not necessarily the, the going to be the watershed the way like when Harry Met Sally was. But it's just it's just well executed, which like like a good figure skating move. It's well executed. But a bunch. Oh, we almost forgot my favorite. The the best the best line or the quote yes. from this movie. Topic. Oh yeah. Topic. Topic. Um, yeah, it's uh it, it, fantastic. And apparently wherever Moira Kelly goes, she still gets 
the topic quote. Oh uh, my gosh. Yeah. Poor lady. Uh, um, in any case, that I think that kind of wraps it up for the cutting edge. But our second film today is also from 1992. And it's also about members of Gen X in early adulthood, although it is quite different from the cutting edge in many respects. From writer director Cameron Crowe, this is Singles. Love is a game. You distinguish yourself by not calling her. Four days he needs to call me. Easy to start. It's a very nice hat you're wearing, and I don't mean that in an Eddie Haskell kind of way. Hard to finish. Linda. Bye, Steve. I left my blue t-shirt at If you can't find love, you settle for sex. I'm on the bed right now. Wearing something really outrageous. I think you got the wrong number, lady, but I'll be right over. In the absence of sex, you go for companionship. Uh, you want to get some dinner? Busy. Uh, how about some lunch? Have a lunch. Coffee? Water? How about some water? Soon you're just happy to have a friend. You know, in the parallel universe, we're probably a scorching couple. But in this one, neighbors. Of course, you can't sleep with friends. Singles. You know I see other people still. You don't fool me. Bridget Fonda. We made the connection, and when you make the connection, it's like chemistry takes care of itself. I mean, it makes its own decisions, you know? Campbell Scott. I was just uh, nowhere near your neighborhood. Kira Sedgwick. Did I overreact? <laughs> Do you know who this is? Sheila Kelly. Could you seat me next to a single guy? I've got a special feeling about you. Jim True. And Matt Dillon. Janet, you rock my world. Singles. If I make this basket, that's fate telling me to call him. Wait, did no basket need call him or don't call him? Never mind. Directed by Cameron Crowe. Um, I want to just talk a little bit about Cameron Crowe at, at the outset because I think he's a very significant figure in particular in terms of 80s teen movies. Uh, while John Hughes may be considered the filmmaker laureate of that era, it actually begins and ends with Cameron Crowe. He wrote Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is the prototype of the 80s teen movie. And then he comes back at the end, uh, at the end of the decade to make Say Anything, which was his directorial debut, a film that you can feel the shadow of the 90s hanging over that movie. Uh, Lloyd Dobler is a 90s character in an 80s teen movie, and he's one of the most significant Generation X characters of that time. So it makes sense that for Crow's second film, that he would also revolve around Gen X characters now in the early 90s and themselves into early adulthood. And I have to be honest, and I'm not sure if this gets my Gen X card membership revoked, uh, no, Gen X would never would never deign to have membership cards, so it's no, I don't have to worry about it. But I had never seen this movie before this week. Oh, Chris, you're being so plastic right now. What's going on? <laughs> I'm just, um, no, I saw this movie way too many times, and I listened to the soundtrack also way oh, it's great. too many times. It's a great soundtrack. Absolutely. It's one of yeah, one of the all-timer 90s soundtracks. But um to look at this, as you'd said, as a Gen X romantic comedy in the wake of When Harry Met Sally, both of those movies, I think, are very similar in the respect that they are both about 
how well-meaning people mess things up. Yeah. How it it's it's a very delicate dance when you're trying to start it and have a relationship and carry it on. And you know how our own neuroses really get in the way. What I find super interesting is that the expression is so radically different because and I'm, you know, you could you you might argue the timing a little bit, but if when Harry Met Sally is about the boomer generation yeah. in some respects, and that's the generation that discovered that they wouldn't be their parents. Uh, and they wound up with a lot of uh, like divorce was allowed to happen. Sure. And that, and, and that very much feels like that kind of movie. Men and women can't be friends. Right. And you have all this sniping about stuff and we just can't get along here. It very much feels like, although it's never explicitly stated, these characters have the neuroses of the kids who came from the yes. divorced parents. Absolutely. Definitely. These are the kids who already are going in thinking it's probably not going to work. Right. In Harry went met Sally. They're like, Oh, I'm supposed to be married by 30 and have kids and all this stuff. Like they still believe in that. I don't think anyone except uh, maybe Janet, Yeah. but no other character in this movie really truly believes that it's going to happen to them. Yeah. They all want it to happen to them, but they don't fundamentally yeah. believe that it's going to. And, and uh, you know, it's it, – it, yeah. I, I love you say that. I hadn't seen this film before this week, but this film is terrific. And I – I mean, I got hit with some very, very serious 90s nostalgia. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a little younger than the characters in this movie. Like I was in high school when they would have been out of college. So I'm not quite – I wasn't quite – but like – I just feel this movie is a movie that feels so authentic to its time. My goodness. Cameron's great at that. The, all the movies that he makes that are set in different eras are very true to that time. And they're all firmly rooted in music, like yeah. we were talking about earlier. When I did uh, at Paramount, we did a, a re-release of Harold and Maude. And I brought Cameron together with Larry Karaszewski, who's a screenwriter, did a bunch of Milos Forman stuff and Ed Wood. And I brought them together for commentary on it to talk about the film and and really Cameron to be the authority on two things on music in film, which is so integral with Harold and Maude, sure. but also the fundamentals of a, of a, a unique relationship and that every, every relationship is bizarre in its own way and faces its own challenges. And he's just a master of working with people who maybe who were, who are just sort of feeling things out. Mm -hmm. They're exploring life. And I've always admired that about the way that he approaches writing characters because he really doesn't write a character ever who just has it down. Right. He writes very human characters and fallible is one thing, but also the curiosity element. And it's not nihilistic, these people who are dealing with challenges and relationships. They maintain that hope that you were talking about earlier, which I think is so valuable. And that hope doesn't need to be in the form of the perfect night. Right. The connection doesn't need to be from a, a perfect anything. It's like we are also flawed, which is I think kind of the main note that's played in singles. Absolutely. Is that is that we're just sort of floating through this universe, each universe is of our own. And once in a while those stars happen to line up. And he's he's just really a master of handling things like this. And and that all of you know that we're in, in a sense we're all going through the same thing, but all of our experiences are are unique in our own. But at the same time, while they are unique in our own, they're also there's commonality in all of that. And and 
you know, it's it's a it's an extraordinary film, and uh, you know, I I should mention the you know, well, you should get this out of the way. But single stars: Bridget Fonda, Campbell Scott, Kira Sedgwick, Sheila Kelly, Jim True, and Matt Dillon, and features more cameo appearances than it's a mad, 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 mad world. <laughs> oh my goodness! We have from the you know from the music scene, we have Eddie Vedder, we have Chris Cornell, we have Tim Burton. We it's not even a cameo, just Paul Giamatti he plays a dude making out with a chick yeah. in, in, a, in, in the cafe. It's not a cameo because he was just, he was an unknown actor, but Paul Giamatti's in there. Eric Stoltz is a mime. Eric Stoltz as a mime. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, I'm going to think of more as I go on because I'm yeah. now. James Legro. Oh, yeah. Yes. James Legro. And, and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, now, of course, I didn't, I didn't put all those in my notes. Peter Horton. I mean, Peter Horton is in this movie, which I have the to bicycle mention. bicycle guy. Yes, yeah. bicycle. we'll get to that in a bit. But I have to mention, <laughs> whenever Peter Horton comes up, that I that he was a client at an agency I used to work at. And he gave me a signed laser disc of Side Out after I mentioned that I was a fan of that movie. Oh, that's solid. It's my, it's my laser. Amazing. It's my one laser disc, yeah. and I'll keep it forever. If I could ever run across T.C. Thomas Howell, I'll get him to to also sign it, and then I'll have the I'll have the whole collection. But um, <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways, first of all, as we said before, this movie is a perfect time capsule of time and place. Seattle in the early '90s, and um, it it reflects a period in people's lives. And I remember this time for me when you're out of school you're not quite an adult. Like it feels like this middle period where you're no longer, you know, necessarily being funded by your parents. You don't necessarily are in college anymore. You have your own apartment, you know, but you, you don't necessarily have a family. You don't necessarily have a spouse. You don't necessarily even have a career. You probably have a job. It is an amazing picture of that landscape of young adulthood kind of uh, it's 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 not, it's something between adolescence and adulthood. It's its own thing. Yeah, and it it works for this because it, it, I think especially well. It is a time where you are once again figuring out who you are. Yeah, right. You had that. You know, there are different points in in growing up. Uh, I guess you know we'll, we'll we'll put the stopper at what twenty five. The brain stops growing. Okay. Um, so, um, and this is uh, it. it when you go through it, it can feel like this is your last chance to change. Yeah. This is going to be who you are forever. And trying to do that in the midst of, and am I going to find uh, a soulmate? It's yeah. just, you know, that's, that's not fair. And, 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 and newsflash <laughs> to the kids out there. Uh, it is not your last chance. You will have many more chances. Uh, all of us are older than our early twenties. And I know for me, I'm still figuring things out. My goodness. You know, uh, it's uh, another thing I want to point out about this movie. It's a little different from the movies we've had so far is that there are multiple couples in this movie and multiple kind of overlapping relationships. Uh, and, and, and the two primary couples are each at very different stages of those relationships. Campbell Scott and Kira Sedgwick play Steve and Linda who meet early in the film and embark on a relationship. So they are going through that period of 
the the euphoria of meeting somebody new and and tempered with sort of the Gen X fear that, well, this isn't actually real or isn't actually going to happen. And Bridget Fonda and Matt Dillon are Janet and Cliff, who have been together for a while, but her affection for him is largely unappreciated. And and the journey they go on is a little bit different than the journey that, that Steve and Linda go on. Um, in a lot of ways, Singles reminds me of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. That both of those movies are kind of, you have a loosely connected group of people that are at a particular stage in their lives, at a particular time, and a particular place. They're, you know, here in Fast Times, they all go to the same high school. Um, here, you know, or, or shop at the same mall, I should say. That's as, as the, the mall is as important as, as the high school in Fast Times. But uh, here, it's that apartment building that all of them, except for Linda, live in. Yeah, there's that communal hive mind kind of thing uh, when you are younger, but you've unleashed into the world where you can be living with friends almost 24-7. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's an interesting dynamic and it makes things um, more fluid. And this and you know, as part of that, this movie is very much not when Harry met Sally in that you have male and female friendships in the here. Yes. Now I don't think, I don't think any conversation in this movie is going to pass the Bechdel test because it's all about dating and the opposite sex. Yeah. But everybody's doing it. That's what this movie's about. You know, that's, that's the thing is, 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 um, you know, it, it's, it, that is part of it. And, and, you know, we opened with Linda who's single and she meets a guy who says he's going back to Spain the next day and she gives him a garage door opener, which I, I thought was weird because I presume she's got two. Um, and then immediately she sees him the next night at the bar, which leads her to buy a new garage door opener, which is one of my favorite lines in the movie. That's the Dodge Dart of garage door openers. Anytime you describe anything as the Dodge Dart of blank, I'm like, you, you have me a Dodge Dart. Um, Steve works for the Department of Transportation and he dreams of building a super train that he believes would alleviate traffic in the city. Now, I have to believe that Steve's dream is a byproduct of watching the short-lived 1979 NBC series Super Train because he would have been just the perfect age for Super Train during when it aired its like seven episodes in in 1979. (laughs) Uh, and we Do also they have meet, great coffee on the show. Oh yeah. <laughs> we also meet Cliff and Janet. Janet's a waitress at a coffee shop. She's saving for architecture school. And Cliff is the lead singer for a grunge band and, and they're dating, but Cliff clearly isn't ready to commit to Janet while Janet is very clearly ready to debate, to, uh, to commit to, to Cliff. Uh, I should also mention Debbie who actually might be my favorite character in the movie. Uh, Debbie is kind of a holdover from the eighties. Which you got because it's only 92, but Debbie still dresses like it's 88 and she uh, is about to jump into the world of dating services, not dating apps, not dating websites, dating services. Um, And and, and we'll get into her whole experience with that because it's hysterical and terrifying. So, yeah, you, you have these characters at sort of different points in their lives, different relationships, and they're all kind of casually connected and... uh, you know, you get to sort of see how they go. They're all hopeful, which is which is an interesting thing. Yeah, I think the optimism is something that is, you know, how different eras kind of become caricatures of what they really were mm-hmm. in in hindsight. Yes, and 
I think that people now, like in the people look back at the fifties and it's all like, leave it to beaver and greaser hair yep. and sock hops. stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. And you look at the sixties and everything, everybody's a hippie. Yep. In the 60s. Which is not of true. That's, that no is, bottoms everywhere. Then, yeah, yeah. You, 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 no, it's, 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 it's absolutely not, not true. Not at all. But now if you work, if you work in some corporate environment and they have 60s day, everyone's going to come wearing the same stuff, yeah. big flowers and beaded necklaces, whatever. So I think that with the grunge thing, having grown up and Rob, we were the precise age yeah. at oh, that time yes. when the whole thing was happening. Yeah. I mean, I, I was swimming in it. I, I saw everyone from Mudhoney to, you know, Nirvana meeting Kurt Cobain. Oh, wow. And I still have a shirt that he signed in my band after the show that we saw. And I mean, I was just steeped in all of this. And I will say that living it from my side of things was, it definitely mirrored my internal conversation. Mm -hmm. There was a certain darkness that sort of pervaded all of that at the time to some extent, but really it, it wasn't as bleak as history has painted it is my point yeah. here, that it, it is the for people who look back, they say, well, hair metal, hair metal was so dominant and so gross for so long. And then then grunge came in and kicked these guys out and made it all mopey. And so if you're watching any kind of comedy show, cartoon, anything that references this time, it's usually someone who's like a Kurt Cobain and they're they're just sort of like mopey and beside themselves playing. But the truth behind it was it was so high energy it was such an exciting time because it's as close in our generation as we had to like the punk rock movement where there was something genuinely countercultural that was happening that felt like it was a, making a beeline into my heart at that age and in my experience. And I was on, in all these different bands doing this stuff. And this movie portrays it, I think, it with more sincerity because we were all just people yeah. – we might have been maybe wearing some of the garb. We might have been in bands like Rob and I were that had some sound that was somewhat similar. But the truth is that this thing was so much more diverse than what history is giving it credit for. And that's one thing I, I can point to singles, having revisited it for this episode. I haven't watched it since it came out, I don't think. I think I maybe since like 92, 93, I don't think I've seen the movie. But in revisiting it, I'm like, man, this reminds me of when I used to go to Iowa City which for me was my New York city, right. which is where the university of Iowa is near where I grew up. And that was where all the coffee shops were. That's where the record stores and the bookstores. And I would, I could participate in poetry readings and stuff. I felt yeah. that entrance that you were talking about, Rob, into adulthood was at this moment at the same time. And so sitting in someone's kind of half filthy apartment where now a lot of these things are presented where people seem to always have perfectly decorated and laid out this and that here they're allowed to have messes yeah. and they have they want to sit by their record collection to talk instead of sitting in a chair because you just that's where you ended up and they're wonderfully improvised in terms of how these people interact in this film and i think it just my long-winded way to say that i think this presents what it was really like then yeah. and i'm glad it is of its time and not something looking back on that time just checking boxes on some general cultural perception list which i think is all too common I also want to mention how that era, that early 90s era, was on the cusp of technological changes that we've experienced over the last 30 years. Like computers were certainly around, and technically so was the internet, but it hadn't had the massive effect on our lives that it soon would. Cell phones existed, but nobody really had them. And it's funny because some of the issues that the characters have in this movie would have been solved 
by the technology that's on the horizon. Yet this world wouldn't exist if it had that technology. Like uh, Debbie, she's jumping into the world of dating services. Now, today, people are on the apps. People, you know, like, but at the time, first of all, there was still a stigma. And there's this thing where she makes this video, this gloriously bizarre video, uh, you know, the, the dating service called Expect the Best. And Tim Burton cameos as the director of the dating video, Debbie Country. Welcome to Debbie Country. It's amazing. I would have, I would have, I would have swiped right on Debbie for sure. I know that it's hilarious because it, it works the same as the social media and dating apps do now, where you create an idealized version of yourself. It's almost like you put your own goals into how you present yourself, and I and and there's something so and then but with her, like now people would create that by themselves and then post it and then sit there with it. She takes it to her friends and is like, "What do you think? Huh? Yeah." It, Mike, is this, you know, and they're all just like, yeah, <laughs> okay. You know, the first time around, then she gives it another try. I think it's just, it's such a fascinating thing to, to witness the vulnerability with her and how, how she, she's so invested. Like she attempts to go up, like she, she gets a date, you know, with the guy who apparently is really into bicycling and she goes to impressive with all the bicycle gear, but she ends up at the wrong bar and then she has to, and then she goes to the second bar and then she learns that the service and this was like, oh, oh, wow. This is the service gave him her home address so he could just go. The, and I'm like, expect is the, expect the best a murder service. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we learned that the guy is Peter Horton and uh, and she's uh, she you know, he's he's kind of connecting with her roommate. And, uh, you know, and, and, and for once we get to see a guy react what it's like when women put a price on him instead of the reverse, uh, you know, what is there like, well, you know, if you, if you give me 80 bucks and do the dishes for a month, you can have them. <laughs> and this is, uh, you know, from that era, we were talking a little bit about it because this Debbie's, uh, trying to wear all the bike gear and buy a bike for this guy who's his video stated he was very into biking. And as you said, she's, she feels like a slightly backward looking character of all the friends. Right. Yeah. And that's in stark contract to, uh, contrast to, uh, boy, I, you know, I was joking about it earlier, but man in the early nineties, authenticity was a thing, right? Like yeah. everyone wanted to be real. We weren't, you know, as you'd referenced the, the glam metal and all of that, right? Yeah. Like that was artifice and we were getting real. Okay. Mm-hmm. And in many ways we were, and in, you know, some ways when you're in high school, you're, you're in high school. But this is in stark contrast to when uh, earlier you have uh, when Steve first tries to pick up uh, Linda and it's the whole no act act. My friend and I have this long running argument. And here it is. It says that when you come to a place like this, you, you can't just be yourself. You have to have an act. So anyway, I, I saw you standing there. So I thought, A, I, I could just leave you alone. B. I could come up with an actor, C. I could just be myself. I chose C. What do you think? I think that A, you have an act. Uh-huh. And that B, not having an act is your act. That is so early 90s. Yeah, that no, is it like absolutely such a thing is. of like, I'm, 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 
I'm just going to be real with you. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's go here. Right? Newsflash. Yeah. Anybody, t- anybody says, I'm going to be real with you. They are immediately not going to be real with you. That is, that is, that is the tip off. <laughs> it is, it is like saying, I'm not going to steal your lunch. Yeah. And you're like, why did you say that? <laughs> why, why do you open with that? Was uh, that on yeah, the table? I, I instantly <laughs> think you're going to do it now. Yeah. I was going to say the people who are like, I'm not racist, but you're like, uh, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and you're like, no, I'm, I'm not going to steal your lunch. What have you been through, Rob? <laughs> oh, dark days, my man. Dark days. <laughs> Welcome to the couch. <laughs> and and Linda too. You know she's she's coming from that that authentic. Oh, she she's looking for authentic. She mentions like the guy she met in college, and I just thought this was hysterical. Was the perfect combination of Mel Gibson and Holden Caulfield. <laughs> Janice trying to do the same thing too. Yeah. Or she's trying to willing to go to any extent to keep yeah. him around. And the more the more he kind of gets attention, the more she's kind of yes. honing in on this. I need to do more. I need to be more. And he couldn't be more nonplussed about the whole affair. I mean, he's just very much a live in the moment kind of character. He's the Spicoli of this movie. Totally. Yeah. And she's trying so hard to, to to catch his eye, to get his attention, and to check the boxes that he has. So it's interesting to see Janet or Bridget Fonda <laughs> go through this as Janet, and um, but two characters who are who are striving. Yeah, one has it kind of in hand, but not really, mm-hmm. and the other is looking for having it in hand, but uh, neither. I mean, they're they're both kind of on parallel roads in a way. And it's it's neat to see how they both work through it individually on Janet's side, kind of on her own, more independently, where uh, on the other side, it's the friends in the, in the dating videos yeah. and like, give me your feedback about, am I handling myself well enough here? And it's interesting because Janet wonders if, you know, there's a physical attribute to Janet. She wonders if her breasts are too small for Cliff. Uh, and so mm-hmm. she explores the idea of going to get breast implants for him. Again, this is insane because it's Bridget Fonda, but you know, and, and she she goes and she has this whole conversation. Bill Pullman is another actor in this movie. He's he's got a small role as her as her plastic surgeon. I thought for a for a time because again I was watching this movie for a time that she was going to end up with Bill Pullman, and it's it's so interesting. And 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 it's her conversation with him that helps her to realize she doesn't need to get breast implants. That's ridiculous, and that she basically breaks up with Cliff and says, "I'm going to find." I'm going to find my authentic self. And then as soon as she does, Cliff is interested again. Cliff starts to notice her because, you know, we all don't realize what we have until it's gone. And then as soon as we realize it's gone, we know it's the thing we always needed. And, and also the, going to these extremes like that, where she's moving through the, the highs of willing to do whatever it takes to the like moving to a different peak where she's like, I need to do this thing. I need to figure it out on my own. That's so that time in our life, Rob, to your point earlier about this moment of discovery where we're going to make irrational decisions in that. And when we're hungry for a relationship or we need to hold on to somebody, I think we've all been in, in those situations where we act differently than we normally would, or oh, yeah. you know, maybe uh, Im- Im- impulsively send a letter or a message or something that might be off time for what's actually happening in the relationship or do develop interests that the other person has and sort of lose ourselves. That's very easy to do too. So I like that not everyone is just yearning that she's on this discovery path that's so clumsy. And again, that goes back to Cameron and, and how he handles characters in such a wonderfully human way. 
by having all of these different characters at different points and relationships with different aspects, what I find uh, that really was great for me is that I connect with all of them at different points, right? Because it's in a movie, you have to have, oh, this character does this one thing that's kind of dumb. Uh, and this other character does this other thing that's dumb. Uh, when you've lived a while, you've you've probably done every dumb thing every dumb in thing. this movie. Every so dumb like, thing. I've been the guy, I've been Janet on the phone calling someone who was clearly not that into me, but oh, just yeah. wouldn't end things. I've also been Cliff, <laughs> ignoring the call from someone who was into me way more than I was into them. Oh, I, I, I've been, I've been Steve making that call in the bathroom of the, of the, of the club, like where he's, you know, he's making the, the, the plea for her to, you know, after they kind of break up and, you know, I've, I've been, yeah, I've been all of them. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the characters in this movie, they're just, they're so, there's so much truth here. There's so much, there's so much genuineness uh, in, in all of these characters. It's a terrific movie. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't see it before now. My goodness. Um, but I'm glad I saw it before. Now. You know, I'm glad I saw it now. And the soundtrack was really omnipresent. It was in in all, geez, every record store was bursting with these. And eventually all the cutout bins and all of the <laughs> used racks were full of singles. I mean, this thing isn't probably for more than 25 cents anywhere in the world to this day to get the soundtrack to singles. But it can't, I mean, to the music point that we haven't really touched on too much, it does the the bands oh my god that are in this i mean there's there's legit alice in chains live yeah. in this film not to mention guys from pearl jam and soundgarden comprise cliff's band so you you look at it's just an amazing lineup and if you have a keen eye for musicians from that era it's 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 remarkable how many people are involved in this not even playing themselves I think it's I think it's just a wonderful yeah. thing that perfectly timestamps it too. And I think that also I don't know if you feel this way Rob but that lent some kind of credibility to this mm -hmm. for audiences at the time that here we were looking for sincerity in everything that we were involved with and how we were interacting through our music and things like that. But having Paul Westerberg come to be the do the score, having all these having Alice in Chains in the film and getting the guys from Pearl Jam to come in. Tim Burton, you don't have to play yourself. You're going to be Dave. Yeah. You're a director, but you're this other thing. I mean, it's bringing people in and using them in ways that I think really lend a lot of credibility to the entire affair. Absolutely. And it's, and even the little interstitial music in between segments, because this this also has you know title cards separating sections. Mm -hmm. um, there's a there's a little bit of a pseudo documentary direct address to camera, although it's it's like halfway between Ferris Bueller and like you know uh, perhaps a more documentary style, but it, it's you know, but it, it all really is of the era. And I I I made a note, and since the music's come up, I'm totally saying it. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I, if Justin, if you noticed this, uh, but uh, after the Debbie Country bit, there's a little, uh, there's a little second unit footage of putting up the Citizen Dick poster on the on the on, the, on yeah. the pole, and it is an instrumental early version of the lick from Spoon Man Soundgarden. Oh that song God. didn't exist yet because that's what on the Super Unknown record. And yeah. I, I like, I went back to make sure I played Spoon Man. I'm like, am I, am I going crazy? And I was like, no, it's the do 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 do. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Oh, that's great. Good that's ear, amazing. Man. Good ear. Yeah. A little, a little, uh, a little uh, Easter egg. 
but they it, but they have those riffs. It's that music going in between um, kind of sequences, which also yeah. kind of helps infuse everything. In addition to the needle drops, in addition to the you know the the bands that we're seeing perform live in in world, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it just uh, yeah, it's like uh, just being steeped in it all. I, I loved it absolutely. And it's and it's wall to wall. There's a consistency to all of it that it never pulls you away. You never walk away from this film. Once you're in it, even though title cards can have that effect, mm-hmm. it's also very much of the time, that kind of penciled or chalked script kind of writing and all that. that that's what we were starting to see. It's handmade. It's authentic. It's handmade. And, and, and it's part of the coffee culture too, which is also a feature in this film, which was, this was the time when at least I came into a understanding that that was a thing oh, yeah. going to hanging out in coffee shops and whatnot. And that, that felt like a rite of passage to some extent. We would go to Denny's and close it down drinking coffee until 2 AM on a Friday and Saturday. And that was very much of the experience for anyone who was at that right age at this time, even though we were a little bit younger than these people. But I remember when the movie first came out for me, you were talking about having seen it, Rob. I, I did see it on video. But when it first came out, it seemed a little too old for me. It seemed like um, I didn't have the draw to the to the theater to see it with like, oh man, this is my people or something like that because it was about like college age, post college people, and so I didn't really know what to make of it. But I also had no clue. I think the marketing, I'm not, I don't remember how the trailer looked, but it didn't. It just, it kind of felt like one that missed me initially. But then on video is where it very much I discovered it. And once I learned about who was involved, it was like layers of like, really, really? Are you kidding? And then I had to see it. Word of mouth traveled around before I even saw the thing. And that's what drew me to rent it back at that time. There, there was one person one person who turned down being involved in it very famously, uh, Mr. Kurt Cobain. Oh, really? They, they thought it was, uh, apparently thought it was a, like a rock and roll movie, which it is not. No. And they, you know, rock and roll movies up to that era time, not necessarily always. Uh, mm. I guess they were the video game adaptations of their time. <laughs> well, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> just we should wrap things up. But you know, uh, Stephen and Linda, they they go through their their trials and tribulations, and 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 uh, they break up. There's a pregnancy scare, and then you know she takes off for for work for an extended period, and then returns, and it's not the same. Uh, and at the same time, Steve has his dream of the super train torpedoed in what um, a scene that is the perfect representation of the dynamic between Gen X and baby boomers, where his super train idea that he's just like been living for and it's just dismissed by the mayor out of hand. I'm saying no. <laughs> and they get it right on his mouth like, oh, could it be worse? Yeah. It's Tom Skerritt as the mayor. That's the, you know, Tom yeah. Skerritt. And I'm like, uh, my wife's like, oh, they got Jester. You know, <laughs> she actually said that. Um, but yeah, it's so, that's so like all this thing that you've poured your passion and your love into. And then you have some, some baby boomer just telling you no. I'm like, that's, that's it. You know, Steve retreats into his apartment. He doesn't go out. He's got this line in modern society. There's almost no need to leave the house. And all I could think of is just you wait, pal. You don't know what's coming. Jeez, Louise. Uh, but in the end, uh, Linda and Steve, Linda does come back to him. 
despite the fact that the voicemail that he left her, she never hears because the tape gets mangled. Another thing where technology voicemail would have made their lives so much smoother. And Janet gets back together with Cliff after he learns to like appreciate what he has. Like it's, you know, the, there's the, they, they kind of come back together, but now on sort of a more equal footing than they were. And Debbie, after asking to be seated next to a single guy on a flight and getting a kid actually strikes up a romance with the kid's single father played by Victor Garber. Unbelievable. And what's great about that is that the kid is no different than all these guys in these know. bars and on these dating apps where he's like, you know, I really see something. <laughs> and she's looking at him like, are you, are you kidding me? Yeah. And that, 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 that part uh, throughout this whole movie, Cameron Crowe, writes such great believably bad guy lines yes not like not like you're an evil guy no not mustache twirling guy to the train tracks but yeah guys just doing dumb Dumb, stuff stupid (laughs) stuff (laughs) because that's what guys do dumb stupid stuff just nails it nails it Uh, and 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 i think the the key the movie ends and there's this great thing where like you have the 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 main characters talking and then you kind of pull back and you hear a bunch of like all kinds of different conversations from all over the city and 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 the point we're all going through the same stuff the details are different for everybody but at the same time the basics are universal and that's what this movie gets across so well it's it's terrific in any case I think you know that 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 brings us, I think, to the end of singles. It's uh, Justin. I, once again, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, it is always great to have you on. Uh, before we go, can you tell us where people could find you on the on the social media and and Reverend Entertainment as well? The social media that didn't exist when singles took place and was made. Yeah. And, and you could probably uh, just drop the home address, like it, uh, like it Debbie. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll send you a video with my address yeah. on okay. it. Well, you know, and make sure you're flying. Do the do the flying effect. Uh, thank you for asking. The the it, my website is reverendentertainment.com or justinbeam.com. It's B E A H M, and same site and same thing on social media. Just look me up by my name, and I love to hear from folks and interact with people. Whatever, if you've uh, ideas for a release, or if you just want to talk shop, and hit me up. I would love to. Oh, I got ideas. Conversation. <laughs> <I'm> sure. <laughs> well, and, th- and thank you for welcoming me back. And I love that you guys, when you bring me on, we're not the Halloween thing was an easy. Sure. Yeah. Obviously, for sure. But but here, I mean, it's it's great. It's really refreshing to dive into some things outside the horror genre, which of course I love. But uh, that's one of the things I love about working with these different studios, everything is different. And I'm like, I mentioned Harold and Maude one day at the same time as working on video violence That's or fantastic. something like that. So yeah. So this has been a treat, a real great conversation and I appreciate it very oh, much. Uh, thank you. Always, always uh, a joy to see you also, man. Uh, just Likewise. on a personal note. And, yeah. and believe me, we'll definitely have you on both for horror and, and otherwise, but uh, you know, don't, don't think that horror thing is the, the horror door is closed. Believe me. Cause we got more, <laughs> right. we got more horror coming, you know, later this year I'm for ready. sure. I was, uh, I was working mm-hmm. on the list of movies for our as yet unannounced horror uh, 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 series that will come later this year. Um, in any case, uh, please join us next week. Uh, we're next week. We're going to be talking about two of the most beloved romantic comedies of this era, two almost foundational texts, if you will, Nora Ephron's sleepless in Seattle 
starring Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. And the British are coming with Four Weddings and a Funeral, uh, which I'm very excited because I have never seen Four Weddings and a Funeral. um, And I have a story to tell about that because I had a choice of two movies. One of them was Four Weddings and a Funeral and one was the worst movie I ever saw in a movie theater. It was a. It was just and and you'll have to tune in next week to find out what that movie was. Um, that was cliffhanger. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Laborgis. And please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at Get Me Another Pod. And if you've enjoyed the show, please tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your barista. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another. Na, 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 na.